This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of April 14th, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 127 of Defender Radio. This week, we're continuing to look at the subject of humane education with one of the biggest names in the business, Zoe Weil of the Institute for Humane Education. But before we get started, there's something that I want to talk about. Defender Radio News. Across North America, families are getting ready for the spring holiday of Easter. Despite ongoing work from dedicated humane societies and animal welfare groups, the sale of rabbits as Easter gifts continues. And every year, these same humane societies and animal welfare groups take in more pet rabbits in need of homes. We are strong supporters of those who rescue domestic animals and help them find new homes. So this year, please consider giving a donation to your local shelter in lieu of an Easter present. A rabbit is a lifetime commitment. Consider saving a life rather than giving one. Defender Radio News The co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education, Zoe Weil is an award-winning author of six books, educator and speaker. She designed the graduate certificate programs for the Institute of Humane Education and is noted by many as a leader in the field of animal welfare and education. We recently spoke with Zoe about her work at the Institute of Humane Education, the importance of humane education in today's world, and how it can improve not just animal welfare, but the quality of life for everybody. How did you get involved in the subject and the work of humane education? Well, I was in graduate school and I was looking for a summer job and I heard about a program at the University of Pennsylvania that offered week-long courses to middle school students and I thought I could offer some courses and the issues that were very near and dear to my heart were issues that were humane education issues. I was concerned about animals. I was concerned about the environment. I was concerned about human rights. I was concerned about media literacy and being critical thinkers. And so I pitched a number of courses to the director of the program, and she said yes to all of them. And what was really interesting was that the animal issues course that I taught was the second most popular of the 60 courses that were offered that summer. And I watched as these kids were transformed in the course of a week. In one case, overnight, I had talked about product testing on animals, you know, when soaps and oven cleaners squeezed into the eyes of conscious rabbits and force-fed to animals in quantities that kill and smeared on their braided skin. And I, um, I taught about that on Wednesday, and the next morning, one of the boys in the class, 12-year-old boy, came in, and he had made his own homemade leaflets the night before. Now, this was in 1987. He did not have a personal computer. He hand-wrote his leaflet. And so while the rest of us were having lunch that day, he stood out on a Philadelphia street corner handing out his homemade leaflet. So that was the summer I realized that this might well be my life's work. And it had a name, Humane Education, and I've been doing it ever since. I guess my next question really has to be, why does humane education matter? Why is it something that people need to know more about and get involved in? 
That's a great question. Well, I'm going to answer it on the, the really the, the deepest level possible. And that is that education is the root system that underlies all other systems. Thoreau once said, there are thousands hacking at the branches of evil to one that is striking at the root. And there are many, many unjust and unsustainable and inhumane systems in the world, systems in agriculture, in production, in transportation, and energy, and politics, and economics. There are many, many systems that need to be transformed to be more sustainable and more humane and more just. And education underlies them all. And humane education, at its core, has the goal of educating people of all ages and in age-appropriate ways so that they have the knowledge and the tools and the motivation to be more conscientious choice, choice makers and more engaged change makers for a peaceful and just world. Or to put it more succinctly, we need to educate a generation of solutionaries. That's the word that we at the Institute for Humane Education like to use. And educating solutionaries, I mean, imagine if we could really do that, if we could educate people so that they were problem solvers, that they looked at the issues that we faced and they found solutions that were just and humane toward all people, toward, toward all species, and toward the environment. And right now, the goal of education in the United States, um, if you go to the U.S. Department of Education's website and you look on their mission statement, the goal of education is to prepare students for global competitiveness. And we've heard that buzz phrase so many times. You know, we need to be globally competitive. We need our students to be able to compete in the global economy. And the problem with that goal is that it's completely myopic for today's world, a world in which we are endangering the ecosystems that sustain all life, in which there are one billion people who don't have enough food to eat and don't have clean water to drink and who are living in abject poverty, a world in which there are approximately one trillion animals killed every year in the United States in, in the process of obtaining food for people. Most of those are in our oceans. And given the problems that we face, we just need a deeper and more meaningful and um, more relevant goal for education. And that is what humane education at its core offers. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment because it's fun. And uh, it also helps sort of get down to some of these questions. Um, I would think that some people who hear about what you do um, say you're trying to push an agenda. Um, you're trying to get people to be vegan. You're trying to get people to change their lifestyle in a way that may not be sustainable for them or may not be important to them. Um, all the while, we're facing major issues, uh, both in Canada and the United States and the world, involving the economy, involving the environment, involving uh, war. I mean, you, you just look at Crimea, you look at Afghanistan, all of these nations that are really just constantly in a state of flux why is it important then that we take any time for these kinds of issues when there are some that many people consider much more important and really takes on that that concept of um, we need to look after our own before we worry about some idealistic issue 
Well, I would agree with you that we need to be looking at all of these issues. I mean, war is a huge issue, and humane education is is uh, examines war and have violent and nonviolent means for ending conflict and and all of the issues that you mentioned. What humane education is really asking is what is education for and how can it be relevant for the 21st century? And I would say that um, the agenda that humane education is seeking to push is an agenda of educating solutionaries and helping people to live lives that do the most good and the least harm to themselves and others. That's the agenda. And if people don't think that that's a good agenda, okay. But I think that most people do think that educating solutionaries and doing the most good and the least harm through their lives and choices is a good thing. So uh, to address, I think, the underlying question you're asking is, is humane education trying to indoctrinate children or tell them, or people of any age actually, or tell them what they should do or the choices they should make? And the answer is absolutely not. That that isn't education at all. That would be indoctrination. The goal of humane education is that students have that knowledge and they have the critical and creative thinking skills and they have the collaborative abilities to be problem solvers and make choices based on their own values and to make them with integrity. And the challenge there is not that we share different values. You know, I have asked thousands and thousands and thousands of people what they think are the best qualities of human beings. And they always give lists that are relatively similar. So no matter the age, no matter the gender, no matter the religion or the race or wherever I've been, the lists are always similar. So nobody says that greed is one of our best qualities or violence and hatred or jealousy. Nobody says that those are among our best qualities. So the question isn't whether I'm trying to or humane education is trying to um, push certain values on people. It's not. The questions that arise are how can we live according to the values that we already have? All of us seem to value kindness and compassion and integrity and honesty and courage and perseverance and fairness. I mean, these are just core human values. So how can we live accordingly, particularly in a complex globalized world in which we have no idea about the effects of our choices? We don't know how our daily choices of what we eat or what we wear or what we buy affects people and the environment and other species all around the globe. And humane education helps us to uncover that. And lastly, to answer that question, I would say that while controversial issues are definitely going to come up in humane education, like you know whether or not we should have gone to war in Iraq or Afghanistan, that's, those are controversial issues, or in the United States, how we, um, you know, the, there's such controversy around the Affordable Care Act, uh, otherwise known as Obamacare. So that, that's, you know, if you were to bring that up in a class, that would be considered a controversial issue. But the real question isn't whether or not we should be talking about controversial issues. The real question is, what are the underlying core questions that that uh, are that are under that issue. So we could debate about the Affordable Care Act or we could be asking students to consider how can we have a health care system for the people in the United States that is 
uh, affordable and effective and available to all? How can we achieve that? And then we can talk about different ways to achieve that. So rather than just be debating uh, or having controversy around either or scenarios, the, the goal would be how can we go to the core issue and be problem solvers? We'll be right back with more from Zoe Weil after these messages. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control will humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Furbearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more from our recent interview with Zoe Weil of the Institute of Humane Education. Now, as someone who was wildly unsuccessful in academia throughout his life, I need to ask, uh, how do people respond to that concept of not just, and to me, it just, it, it says you're trying to teach people to be critical thinkers with the appropriate information and rather than just debate a point, look for solutions. But that is also a fundamental change in the way a lot of education takes place. Um, in my experience, and speaking with a lot of uh, people I know who are in the education business, it's frequently um, the concept of memorization so that you can then apply information. Um, but this, to me, is really the opposite of that in trying to discuss a concept rather than just saying these are the facts, memorize them, and then at some point when they come up, you'll have them. This is find the facts it is debate the facts and find solutions by using those facts. So how have people responded to that concept of really almost changing the way 
some of the base education should or will take place? Well, there are a lot of people challenging the the current systems of education, and it, you know this is a very juicy uh, arena right now where there are lots of people and lots of ideas. So the things that I'm saying are not coming out of the blue. They're part of uh, a number of people really questioning the current educational model and the high stakes testing that we have in the United States, and so. Um, I would say that that there's a fair amount of openness right now to education, not among everybody. I mean, people have their entrenched ideas, but in general, there's a fair amount of openness to how do we solve a problem that we most of us agree is is going on, which is we're not uh, we're not quite educating well enough for the 21st century. Now. I did a TEDx talk. I've done six of them, but my first one was called The World Becomes What You Teach, and it, it really presented this idea of of creating a new goal for education, which is to graduate a generation of solutionaries. And that TEDx talk um, has has been very, very well received. It's uh, among the most viewed and, and has been among the most popular TEDx talks and that um, that have been uploaded onto YouTube. And so to me, that says that people are, are really wanting new and fresh ideas for how we transform education and they're excited by them. Um, so I, I feel that I'm, I'm finding that people are receptive and more and more people will be more and more receptive as we explore how this can really work. And at the Institute for Humane Education, we're actually doing that right now. We're in the process of planning the first solutionary school to open in New York City that will have these concepts at the core of the entire pre-kindergarten through 12th grade school. And we also have launched solutionary congresses where instead of students debating an either-or scenario, they're actually coming up with solutions to real-life problems, either in their school or their community or their nation or the world. And so these ideas are taking root, and it's really exciting to see. Absolutely. And I would think with the political uh, system in the United States, that's a very interesting concept because you do have a two-party system where it very frequently comes down to either or. It's one issue or the other. Um, Now, I'd uh, change direction a little bit here. Um, One of the things that we deal with frequently is the mythology of environmental um, issues, the mythology of environmentalists, um, and really how some of these issues are portrayed. So, for example, I'll give you a couple. One of them is that uh, wildlife populations are out of control unless we humans control them. Now, this goes against the very basis of ecological science, as most people will remember from grade nine science, that the systems are designed to maintain themselves. And I use the term designed loosely. Um, and then we also have to deal with people who say uh, the only way to prevent conflict is to control these populations. Now, one of the problems that we face as a result of this is trying to compete against um, a scientific myth with scientific fact. That to me is something that will likely come up in a lot of what you deal with because you're looking at some of these, as you said, um, controversial issues. So how can we teach people to look at these things 
uh, in such a way that they are both compassionate but realistic? That's a good question, and you know, you're you're right that um, you know there are sort of mythologies about what is true, and uh, it's very difficult these days to find what is true because uh, well, I should let me clarify that it's both. Um, difficult and it's also never been easier and I say that because you can just you know do a Google search and you're going to find lots and lots and lots and lots of information how will you know what information is true that's why it's difficult what makes it never been easier is that you can actually do that you don't have to go to the library and go to encyclopedias and do reference work and go through interlibrary loan you actually have at your fingertips all of human knowledge, which is extraordinary, but it also takes a tremendous amount of work to sift through it and to distinguish fact from opinion and find out what's really true. And I think that that gets back to what's so exciting about the solutionary approach to education, which is that it, it demands of students that they look at whatever issue with a solutionary lens. So, for example, if the issue is, you know, um, you know, wildlife in a community and people's concerns that the wildlife is, quote unquote, out of control. So, if you were going to give a group of students the job of coming up with a solution to that, as opposed to debating it, right, which is what might happen in the town hall, um, you would say, okay, here are the issues, here are the stakeholders, here are what different people are saying about it. Let's come up with a solution that is good for people, animals, and the environment. So with that in mind, the, the sort of either-or situation, which you might hear, okay, now we have to just kill the deer and cull the population, um, or, okay, now we're just going to let the deer run free so that we don't kill the deer, that those two scenarios would not be acceptable. You wouldn't have people just debating one side or the other. You would have people who were going to the root and coming up with ideas that work for everybody, that work for the deer, that work for the communities, that work for the environment. Now, it's not to say this never happens. Of course this happens. And, you know, I, I remember this issue, that the one I raised about deer, you know, coming up over the last 25 years when I was living in Philadelphia and you know, there were um, birth control methods that were being devised, and then people were saying, oh, we can't use those. But if the solutionary approach is the core approach, not the either-or, not the debate, but the solutionary approach, it will be inevitable that that's what we would pursue, because that's what kids have learned in school. This is why it's the root system underlying all the other systems, because it just wouldn't be an option to just be debating to one side or another, have to come up with plans, you know, C, D, E, and F. Now, to take that a step further, um, because I've sat in far too many town councils, city councils, you know, legislative bodies as both a journalist and an animal advocate, um, and that's what ends up happening, is it does break down into an either-or debate. Um, and that has political reasons, that has reasons of making it often just a much more expedient debate. Um and how do we then take the lessons that you're trying to instill in children and young adults and adults through your program? And when I walk into a room, um, how do I introduce that concept? How do I, as an animal advocate, say, this is what I'd like to see happen 
And I think what you're suggesting is morally, scientifically, and ethically wrong. So let's find something that can work for everybody. How do I get across the point that that is how we will find a true compromise and we'll find the best scenario for everybody? And when I say everybody, I include non-human animals, the environments, and the future uh, environments. Well, I think you do just that. And, you know, at the same time, we have to be building a society in which that's the normative way of thinking. And so you bring that up and some people reject it right now because we're not quite there yet, um, but we're getting there. I think that um, this solutions-oriented mindset is, it has to take over. You know, um, in the United States, we just watched our government shut down, you know, just because we, we are just completely dysfunctional. Um, and that has to change. And part of the problem is that we are, this is not being cultivated. The either or, um, one side versus another fighting about, um, very simplistic ways of thinking is the norm. It's the norm in our media and it has to change. So what you just said is a way of starting to get that to change and writing about it as a journalist is a way of getting that to change. Um, and fundamentally, if we don't educate our children in this way, it probably won't change. But if we do, granted, it, it, you know, it, it takes, um, it takes 10 years to do that. Uh, and some might say we don't have enough time to wait 10 years. But if we're not simultaneously doing that, if that isn't the root system that we're addressing, then we're just always going to be uh, fighting an uphill battle. All right. My final question for you is one of somewhat broad implication. Um, but with what you do, you will look at the future and find ways to make it better. And that is something that we all choose uh, in this line of work, be it on my side with animal protection directly, on your side with general education focused on humane uh, education. I guess one of the things I have to ask, and really what might end up being the ultimate question, is how do we preserve the hope that we will get there, that we will be able to make a better world? Because as we've said, Right now, you know, we're seeing a state of war developing in Eastern Europe. We're seeing animals killed by the tens of millions for the agricultural industry. We're seeing them killed by the hundreds of thousands for the fur industry. Um, we're seeing children starve to death in areas where we know um, we all can make a difference. So how do we preserve that hope that someday we will make a difference with these lessons we're learning today through work like yours? That's a great question. It's a really important question too. And, um, I'll answer it by, by telling you a, a story. So about a year and a half ago, I was giving a presentation in, uh, Connecticut school to fifth and sixth graders. And I had, this was an affluent community. It was a progressive school. And I began the presentation by asking the kids what they thought were the biggest problems in the world. And they mentioned all the things that, you know, adults would mention, that any of us would mention. And in fact, I've asked that question many times and the list, just like the list of best qualities are similar, the list of problems are similar because people know what they are, even 10-year-olds. So these kids listed this very um, common list. And then I asked them to raise their hands if they could imagine us solving these problems. 
And of the 45 kids in the room, only a handful raised their hands. And that was probably the most alarming moment in my 25-year career as a humane educator. Because I thought to myself, if these kids can't even imagine us solving these problems, what would be their motivation to try? So I did a little activity with them in which I asked them to imagine themselves very old and approaching the end of their life. I had them close their eyes, and I I described this very different world, a world without poverty and war, without animal cruelty and environmental destruction, a world in which species were recovering and the environment was recovering. And, and then I asked them to imagine that a child came up to them and was talking to them about history that they were learning in school and and knew that they had lived in much darker times because they were so old at this point in their imagination. And the, the child asked them what they did to help bring about a better world. So I asked them to visualize this child asking this question, what did you do to help bring about a better world? And while I had their eyes closed thinking about their answer to the question, then I asked them again to raise their hands if they could now imagine us solving the problems we face. And this time, only a handful did not raise their hands. So it didn't take very much at all to help these kids to reestablish their hope and their sense of efficacy in the world. So here's the reality, that everything that you just said is absolutely true. You know, there's so much injustice and cruelty in the world, and I always feel like I have to speak out for the sea animals because those, you know, those millions that you mentioned uh, in agriculture who are dying, you know, there's, there's close to a trillion dying just in our oceans every year, and we often just forget about them, and our, you know, fish populations are just declining dramatically. Um, and... That is a reality. But here's another reality. We are living in less violent and less cruel and less discriminatory times than ever before in recorded human history. And that is a very difficult reality for people to believe. And so I would say to your listeners, don't believe it. Just go research it. Find out if it's true. There's a wonderful book by Harvard cognitive scientist Steven Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature that is about 600 pages, about 100 of which are citations that prove this point. That's the good news. And the other good news is that never before have we had the capacity to communicate with and collaborate with people across every border instantaneously to work together to solve our problems. So the stakes have never been higher and, and the opportunities have never been greater to actually solve our problems. The question is not can we, the question is will we? And so for anybody who is feeling that there's not hope, all I can say is that is because we are inundated with the bad news and we are not made as aware of all the good news. And if we pause for a moment and we think about the, the injustices that were perpetrated not very long ago, which are changing so dramatically. I mean, a hundred years ago, Women in the United States didn't have the right to vote. I mean, that's a shockingly short period in history. And now, you know, just in the last 10 years, gays and lesbians have gained the right to marry, where 20 years ago, that would have been thought unthinkable in such a short period of time. Things are changing, and we need to focus on those things 
to give ourselves the hope and motivation to do the work that we need to do. To find out more about Zoe Weil and the Institute of Humane Education, visit humaneeducation.org. That's the show for this week. I'd like to thank Zoe for her participation and Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.